Let's look up there, one of the scouts whispered, pointing to a ridge. The other scout nodded silently and followed him to the crest of the hill. The two men's eyes widened and their hearts started pounding at what they saw in the valley below. Like a snake uncoiling from its perch to seek its prey, hundreds of Indian warriors were leaving their campsite and moving onto the warpath. The scouts looked at one another in alarm. We've got to warn Colonel Lewis. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. And well, gang, we're down to our last five episodes of Season 2 as we bring you Chapter 64 of The Voice, The Revolution, and the Key called Winds of War. We focus on a certain battle that could be considered the very first of the American Revolution. And then later in Jenny's corner, Jenny will reveal her very personal connection to that battle. But right now, let me bring out your revolutionary hosts, our very special Scotty dog, Max, our brilliant French kitty friend, Liz, and our exceptional British mouse, Nigel. Greetings, lads and lasses. Bonjour, mes amis. Uh, Nigel? Oh, I forgot. Nigel be wanting to make a grand entrance today. Uh, okay. Here is Nigel. Huzzah! Huzzah! Well, well, look at you, mon ami, all dressed up for, uh, uh, some reason. Hey, lad, this don't be trick-or-treating time. And uh, no, dear boy, I am outfitted in the finest frontier attire. We oui, what an adorable little buckskin jacket with a tiny little fringe. <laughs> Très bien. I'll have you know it is authentic to the period from whence our story is derived. Aye, but the question is... Why are you dressed like that, laddie? I have officially joined a rodent reenactment society. We reenact famous battles from the American Revolution, like in today's story. A reenactment society? Ooh, that sounds rather exclusive. Indeed it is, my pet. It is a closed society of which I've been on a waiting list to join for quite some time. Well, uh, it seems they've recently had quite a rash of unforeseen openings and, well, ha! <laughs> My number came up. I'm in. Uh, huzzah! Huzzah! Hey, Mousy, I like your jacket too. But where do you get that wee little coonskin cap on your head? Well, Max, uh, truth be told, it came from a tiny little Davy Crockett action figure. You got it from a doll? Action figure, old boy. And uh, each was sold separately. Well, it is adorable. I say, adorable isn't exactly what I was aiming for. Of course not, but it is. And where did you get that tiny little musket? From the tiny little musket maker, of course. Hey, where else? Well, tell us, lad, what all will you be doing in your reenactment? Well, frankly, being my rookie venture, I don't know a lot of details, but it's all here in the information they sent me. Oh, my, so many pages. What is all this? Oh, I don't know. Probably the usual legal mumbo-jumbo and whatnot. Uh, have a look at it if you like. Now, if you'll excuse me momentarily, I must go clean my tiny little musket and polish my tiny little boots and, and so forth. I shall return post-haste. Until then, though, I shall be in my uh, tiny, tiny little, little newsroom. Hey, newsroom not included. 
Boots, weapons, and uniform, each sold separately. Meanwhile, back to our current episode, and... Just a minute, Max. Uh, Nigel, have you read this paper you have to sign? Ah, he's already scurried off, lass. What's wrong, then? Oh, dear, Max. He needs to read this before he signs on the dotted line. What is it? It is a massive disclaimer, saying they are not responsible if Nigel should have, uh, things happen to him. Like what, Liz? But Liz wasn't able to answer Max's question just now. I wasn't? At least not yet. Uh-oh, Liz, he'd be using his fancy announcer voice. We? Uh, oui. Why can I not answer his question? Because we have a bigger tale to tell. The tale of real battles. Battles of weapons, battles of words, and battles of physical frailty. Hey, in other words, Chapter 64 of The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key. He's got you there, lass. Uh, oui, je comprends. It is time for today's chapter. Hit it, monsieur. Chapter 64. Winds of War. Point Pleasant, Virginia. October 10th, 1774. The early morning dew had already drenched the fringed moccasins of the two scouts who walked along the upper banks of the Ohio River. Dressed in rugged buckskin clothes with wide-brimmed hats and carrying their long rifles, the men moved quietly along. They smelled the air for the aroma of cooking fires and listened for the sound of any Indian activity. The stars were slowly beginning to fade into the light gray sky as sunrise approached. Let's look up there, one of the scouts whispered, pointing to a ridge. The other scout nodded silently and followed him to the crest of the hill, where a brisk wind hit them, as did the view. The two men's eyes widened, and their hearts started pounding at what they saw in the valley below. Like a snake uncoiling from its perch to seek its prey, hundreds of Indian warriors were leaving their campsite and moving onto the warpath. The scouts looked at one another in alarm. We've got to warn Colonel Lewis. As the scouts began running along the ridge, they were spotted by an Indian scout, who fired his rifle, hitting one of the men in the side. The scout fell to the ground, while the other man kept running back to camp. The Indians began beating their war drums, and a few warriors filled the air with blood-curdling war cries. The scout who was shot lay on the ground, blood trickling from the corner of his mouth as he held a bloodied hand over his abdomen. Clary, in the form of a frontiersman, ran over to him and knelt by his side, grief-stricken that she was too late, although Gilliman had told her he would not survive. She put her hand on his forehead, trying to calm the dying man. Shh, Samuel. Have no fear of leaving this earth, for glorious heaven awaits you. Your wife and children will be well cared for, and your legacy will touch generations to come. Samuel looked up at Clary, but could only communicate with his eyes. A single tear rolled down his cheek to the cold ground, and he suddenly grew calm. As the first pink streaks of color filled the morning sky, Samuel let go a shallow breath and was gone. Clary closed his eyes with the palm of her hand and tenderly kissed his forehead. Well done, good and faithful servant, 
She picked up her rifle and stood over Samuel, gazing at the Indians heading to war against the Virginians. Maker, please arm us for battle and make our aim sure. She hurried away and ran as fast as she could back toward Andrew Lewis and his men. Hanover, November 2nd, 1774. Patrick Henry had rushed back from Philadelphia early for nothing. Lord Dunmore had not yet arrived from the frontier, so the assembly of Burgesses would be delayed once again. News was beginning to trickle in about Dunmore's war and his victory over the Indians, but the people of Hanover were also eager to hear the news of what had happened in Philadelphia at the First Continental Congress. One evening, Patrick sat around with some prominent gentlemen at the home of Colonel Samuel Overton. Please tell us, Patrick, do you think there is any hope for reconciling with England? Colonel Overton asked. Patrick wore a grim expression and slowly shook his head. Great Britain will drive us to extremities. He looked around the room at the men gathered there to gauge their response. No accommodation will take place. Hostilities will soon commence, and a desperate and bloody touch it will be. But see here, can the colonies successfully oppose Great Britain's navy and army? Another man asked worriedly, followed by murmurs of doubts from the others. I doubt we can do it alone, Patrick replied, suddenly getting to his feet to zealously face the men. But where is France? Where is Spain? Where is Holland? he asked them urgently, punctuating the air with his hands. Do you suppose they will stand by, idle and indifferent spectators? Will Louis XVI be asleep all this while? Believe me, no. The gentlemen looked at one another in alarm to consider the possibility of international powers getting in the middle of their quarrel with the crown. Did Congress go so far as to already suggest foreign alliances? Overton asked. Patrick crossed his arms over his chest and looked at his toes for a moment. Not as a whole, but I believe it to be inevitable that they will. They must, if the winds of war continue to blow in, as has the gale from the north. Little did Patrick know that the winds of war were blowing not just from the north in Boston, but from the west in Point Pleasant. Scotchtown, November 15th, 1774. William, I'm glad you are here safe and sound, Patrick told his brother-in-law as he ushered him into his office and shut the door. It's good to be safe and sound, Pat, thank you, Colonel William Christian answered. He was married to Patrick's sister, Anne. Mother was visiting Anne out west when the hostilities began, related Patrick, so they both came here to Scotchtown for safety. I'm just sorry I was in Philadelphia and not here to comfort them. They anxiously awaited word and shared with me the little news they received about Point Pleasant, but I'd like to hear it firsthand from you. Patrick wore a grave expression and gripped his brother-in-law's arm. Please, tell me everything. What happened out there? I will tell you what I learned from Colonel Lewis, as I and my men did not arrive until the evening of the bloody battle. 
William removed his tricorn hat and set it on the table as he took his seat. It was a long day of hand-to-hand combat with the Shawnee and Mingo Indians. Chief Cornstalk brought 1,200 Indian warriors against Colonel Lewis's army of 1,250 militiamen. Our Virginia Long Riflemen won the victory despite heavy losses, and the Indians retreated across the Ohio. Dunmore did secure a peace treaty with the Indians and is now marching home with a victory under his belt. The western frontier is secure from Indian threats for now. Dunmore will no doubt be hailed as a hero, Pat, but how the Battle of Point Pleasant came about is troubling. Patrick rested his elbows on his knees and leaned in, listening intently. What do you mean? Well... Dunmore had mapped out a simple plan. His northern army was to rendezvous with Colonel Andrew Lewis and his southern army at the mouth of the Kanawha River, and then they were to march as one force to cross the Ohio and face the Shawnee, William began. Colonel Lewis arrived at the meeting place of Point Pleasant on October 6th, but Dunmore wasn't there. They found a note from Dunmore left in the hollow of a tree, telling Lewis and his men to meet him many miles upstream in Fort Gower, and there they would proceed against the Indians. But Lewis's officers and men were tired, and their horses needed rest before pressing on. Colonel Lewis felt it wise to wait for me and my men to arrive from Fincastle with gunpowder and supplies. Andrew Lewis is a wise man. What happened then? Patrick asked. Lewis sent messengers up the Ohio to find Dunmore and tell him of their arrival at Point Pleasant and his decision to rest and wait for reinforcements and supplies, especially black powder, before marching on to Fort Gower. Dunmore sent a message back to Lewis on October 9th with an old Indian trader named William McCullough. William leaned in toward Patrick. McCullough hinted that Lewis might soon expect some hot work, but he didn't explain. Hot work? Patrick asked, narrowing his eyes. Go on. On the morning of October 10th, Colonel Lewis wisely sent several two-man teams to scout out the area, William relayed. One team proceeded along the upper banks of the Ohio River. Suddenly they came over the crest of the hill to see the main body of Cornstalk's force moving in a three-quarter-mile-long column toward Point Pleasant. The scouts immediately turned to run back to warn Lewis, but they were spotted. One of those men was killed, and the other scout made it back to camp to warn Lewis. The battle erupted soon after. We lost 80 men and 140 were wounded. Sadly, Andrew's brother, Colonel Charles Lewis, was killed, and your brother-in-law, Colonel William Fleming, was wounded. Patrick clenched his jaw. What a tragic loss of Charles Lewis and those brave men. I pray Fleming will recover quickly. William paused and drummed his fingers on the arm of his chair. The Indians were well-armed with tomahawks, but also powder, lead, and guns, including... British flintlock muskets and rifles. 
Dunmore supposedly was meeting with the Indians to work out a peace treaty, and had invited the Shawnees, but they would not come. Delaware Chief White Eyes informed Dunmore that 700 Shawnee warriors had gone southward to speak to the army there, and would be joined by another Indian nation. He said they would begin with the Virginians there in the morning, and their business would be over by breakfast. Not only that, but the Indians themselves taunted our men and mocked our fife-playing, shouting, "'Don't you whistle now!' and making very merry about a treaty. Dunmore knew the attack was coming, Pat. Andrew Lewis suspects that Dunmore may have arranged for, or at the very least, allowed the Indians to attack us at Point Pleasant. This is hard to believe. Patrick's face grew ashen with the shock of this news. I know, William agreed with a frown. Following the battle, Lewis attempted to head north to meet up with Dunmore, but Dunmore three times demanded that he return to Point Pleasant, as he was in the middle of a treaty. Lewis wanted to attack Dunmore himself after that. Why keep Lewis away after he had secured a victory? Was Dunmore working on a treaty or treason? Patrick asked gravely, standing to pace about the room. If Dunmore knew the Indians would be attacking in the morning, why didn't he go to Lewis's aid? William thought a moment before answering. If we wish to consider him in an innocent light, perhaps Dunmore knew he couldn't reach Lewis in time to be of any help, or perhaps he had great confidence in our fighting men to handle the Indian attack, or maybe he was put out with Lewis for not following his orders to head immediately to Fort Gower. But if Lord Dunmore did in fact allow those Indians to wipe out Andrew Lewis's southern army. It would remove a military threat against him. Dunmore has already felt the sting of Virginians opposing him politically and has repeatedly dissolved our House of Burgesses. But he knows that this has not stopped us from meeting and taking action, such as sending delegates to Philadelphia for the Congress, Patrick detailed. So if Virginia were to rise up in arms, as the people of Massachusetts have, against the British, Lord Dunmore knows there are no regiments of redcoats here to squash a rebellion of the most populous colony in America, William realized. He hasn't been able to stop Virginia politically, so was he trying to stop us militarily? What if the Crown ordered Dunmore to quickly end the war with the Indians, and secure an alliance with them in favor of England against the colonies, should the mounting revolution come? Patrick asked rhetorically. He folded his hands and propped them over his mouth with his thumbs under his chin as he paced about the room thinking. Andrew Lewis and his men thought, as did we all, that this war with the Indians would be a battle of colonists versus Indians. Patrick reasoned as he continued to pace, but it is only after the conflict that Dunmore's war appears to have been a battle between rebels versus Indians, armed and used by the British. If Lewis claims that 
Dunmore not only failed to come to his aid, but actually aided the Indians? Then this is inconceivable treachery. Beyond that, if the British allied with the Indians against the colonists, or rebels, as Dunmore sees us, this would make the Battle of Point Pleasant the first conflict in a revolutionary war. He stopped, looked at William, and crossed his arms over his chest. And we cannot do anything about it. Yet... William Christian's eyes widened. But why? Colonel Lewis intends to notify Colonel Washington of everything that happened at Point Pleasant, and has vowed to refuse any future orders from Lord Dunmore. Because we are not yet sufficiently armed to face the British Army and Navy, Patrick explained, sitting down next to William. Since we cannot really prove anything, we must not allow the general population to know of Dunmore's possible treachery until we are well armed and have solid evidence. Otherwise, the people of Williamsburg will storm the governor's palace and drag Dunmore through the streets. Then the British Navy would arrive off our coast, and redcoats would descend on Williamsburg and spread through Virginia like a swarm of red locusts, William slowly predicted as he realized the gravity of the situation. Virginia needs to take up arms in each and every town and county, with a well-armed militia, ready to fight at a moment's notice. You and I shall call a gathering of men here in Hanover, and when you return to Fincastle you can rally the militia there, Patrick told him. Still fresh in his mind were the images of his uncle Langlou standing on a tree stump to rally soldiers to the cause of the French and Indian War, and Reverend Samuel Davies pleading with brave young men to fight. You can rally the men with the heroic account of the Virginia militia defending the frontier against the Indians at Point Pleasant, and inspire them with the sacrifice that our brave men gave in shedding their blood. We shall affix urgency in the hearts of the people to be ready for armed conflict from anyone hostile to our liberty, including the British. Very well. I shall do as you wish, Pat, William answered. I need to share one more bit of information with you about the Battle of Point Pleasant. The scout that the Indians killed, who shed his blood before anyone that day, it was Samuel Crowley. Patrick's face fell. Oh, no! Not Samuel! Poor dear Elizabeth! She and Sally were such close friends. Patrick shook his head sadly. She has several small children. William nodded. Not only has she lost her husband, but Elizabeth is pregnant, Pat. Her baby is due in the spring. Grief rose in Patrick's throat, and his eyes flashed in anger to think of Samuel's death coming as a result of Dunmore's actions. I count Samuel Crowley as the first patriot to die in this revolutionary war, which will also soon be birthed. Virginia owes this first war widow assistance for her sacrifice. I will write to Elizabeth about filing a wartime pension in Samuel's name for this battle, and I will do all I can to assist her. Liz locked sad eyes with Kate as they heard this news. 
the men then made plans to rally the Hanover militia at Smith's Tavern. Patrick would seek the formation of a voluntary expeditionary force that would select its own officers once enough men had signed up to serve. When William at last left the room, Patrick took out paper and quill and wrote a letter to Elizabeth. He also enclosed some money for her immediate aid. Liz and Kate made their way outside to sit by the boxwoods. The air had turned cold. Quel dommage! I cannot believe Samuel was killed, Liz cried. But I am grateful Mo Henry will make sure his family is cared for. Kate lowered her head. Aye, tis sad to think of Elizabeth left alone with all those wee lads and lassies. No one is sadder than I, came a voice from the boxwoods. It was Clary. She was in the form of a courier. I was with Samuel when he died. Liz rushed over to Clary. We are so very sorry, mon ami. What will happen to his widow? Kate worried. I'll take Patrick's letter to Elizabeth and then stay a short while to help her with the house and the children, Clary explained. She will be well taken care of by family and friends like Patrick. Gilliman told me that one of Samuel and Elizabeth's children will play a crucial role for the Order of the Seven in the future, but how he doesn't yet know. I will be looking out for the boy in the years to come. He's only two years old. Liz and Kate shared a look of puzzlement mixed with sadness. What is the boy's name? His name is Littleberry, Clarie answered. Littleberry Crowley. I like his name, Kate said, with a ray of hope in this melancholy moment. I wonder what he'll do that's so grand. Time will tell. It always does, Clarie answered. Clarie, I fear that Elizabeth is not the only one who will be widowed and left with small children like Littleberry, Liz lamented. Sally is growing worse by the day. Clarie softly petted Liz and nodded. I know, Liz. There are hard days ahead for Patrick and the Henry household. You and Kate will need to stay strong and bring them comfort in the midst of it all. We shall, promised Liz, locking eyes with Kate. But we are also worried about all that has happened with Lord Dunmore and the mounting tensions Patrick discussed with William. The winds of war have started to blow, Kate added. A heavy gust of wind blew, and Clarie tightened her hat on her head. Yes, the revolution is coming, but you've known this all along. For now, there is nothing you need to do but stay here with Patrick through the cold months ahead. I'll see you soon. She stood up, ready to walk to the house. And just to let you know, Max went to Mount Vernon with George Washington from Philadelphia, and Nigel decided to go with him to explore the farm. Cato will remain in Philadelphia until February and pick up Nigel on his way back to Scotchtown. Why is Cato staying in Philadelphia? Kate asked. Clarice smiled. You'll be glad to hear that Cato found a mate and had three baby eaglets, Plutarch, Veritas, and Alexander. C'est bon! Oh, what happy news! 
Liz cheered. Aye, we needed some happy news, Kate agreed, wagging her tail. We ones always give us hope for the future. And uh, what is the news of my Albert? Liz wanted to know. He is happy and well, Liz. Al recently completed an important assignment in London, Clarie told her. He arranged for a man named Thomas Paine to meet Benjamin Franklin in order to help the man with introductions in Philadelphia. Paine just arrived in the city and will pick up his pen soon. Oh, what will Thomas Paine write? Liz asked. A lot of common sense, Clarie replied with a grin. Now I must be going. A bientôt, mon ami, Liz said. Clarie reached down and scratched Kate under the chin. Take care of Sally and keep talking to her. It helps. Aye, that will do, Kate answered, trotting along with Clarie as she headed to the house to retrieve Patrick's letter to Elizabeth. Liz sat a moment to consider all the news she had heard. Alarming news about Lord Dunmore and the coming revolution. Sad news about Samuel and Elizabeth. Hopeful news about Littleberry. Happy news about Cato's eaglets. And crushing news about Sally. Life was ever filled with all manner of sad and happy things happening at once. Another gust of cold November wind blew Liz's fur and sent a chill up her spine. She walked over to the patch of daisies Patrick had planted for Sally. They were now withered and dead. Liz's eyes brimmed with tears as she thought of the words from Ecclesiastes. There is a time for everything, and a season for every activity under heaven. A time for war, and a time for peace. A time to be born. Liz recited aloud with a broken voice, picking up a brown daisy stem. And the time to die. Uh, that be a sad ending this week, lass, with reading them verses from Ecclesiastes. We, oui, the maker's word has every trial of life covered. Aye, and also there's something about putting them words down in writing, which makes them official then. Exactement. And Max, you should see the things they have put in writing in Nigel's reenactment paperwork. And he has to sign it, Eyeless? We, oui. according to this document, Nigel could be setting himself up for dangerous, perilous circumstances for which the reenactment officials will take no responsibility. <laughs> what kind of dangers are we talking about then? Oh, Max, terrible thi- Uh-oh, oh dear, uh, never mind. Here comes Nigel. I say, riveting story this week, what? I was listening intently from my newsroom as I polished my boots. Hey, Mosey, and, uh, you, you really got them boots uh, shining nice, then? Indeed. Uh, we, Nigel, but uh, on the other hand, there is the matter of signing this document, and... Well, my pet, that will have to wait, as we are foregoing Nigel's news nuggets to go straight to Jenny's Corner today, as our author friend Jenny L. Cody brings us a fascinating personal account of today's chapter and, in particular, the story of our fallen soldier at the Battle of Point Pleasant. Over to you, Miss Jenny. I have a lot of personal background that I'd like to share with you about this. 
Samuel Crowley and Elizabeth Strong were my real sixth great-grandparents. And when I uncovered this personal history connection with Patrick Henry, I cannot tell you how it floored me. My Uncle Willie, who did genealogy research, came across records in Richmond with Patrick Henry as governor signing documents for this widow, Elizabeth Crowley, to get her money for her dependents. She was the only widow of the Battle of Point Pleasant that received a wartime pension from the Virginia House of Burgesses. And then five years later, he went to bat to get her more money as governor. Now, Elizabeth Strong was from Hanover. And as you can imagine, this is a small little place. She was the same age as Patrick Henry. And I don't know this for sure, but it is extremely plausible that she indeed was friends with Patrick and Sally. And so I can't tell you what a joy it was for me to weave this plausible fiction plotline into the story with my real ancestors. Samuel indeed was the scout that died at the Battle of Point Pleasant, the first one to die in that skirmish. And the people in that area long considered that this indeed was the first battle of the American Revolution. Remember, this happened October 1774. This was six months before Lexington and Concord. But if indeed Lord Dunmore hired the Indians to fight against the Virginians to wipe out any kind of a military opposition from the strongest fighters in Virginia, they would indeed be called mercenaries working for the crown to fight against the colonists. Well, technically, that is the beginning of war. So you can see why I am so passionate, why I bleed red, white, and blue, because if my patriot forefather, Samuel Crowley, was the first to die at the first battle of the revolution, for those who consider it, then I am the first daughter of the American Revolution. I descended from his son named Littleberry Crowley. I love that name. Down through my grandmother's line. So this was a real special plot line that had real history of my real ancestors. And I'm just so grateful I was able to weave it into this amazing story with Patrick Henry. Aye, that were a treat for all of us, Miss Jenny. I wish I had a relative in the revolution. Um, I am not saying a word, but for some reason that reminds me, as we inch closer to the finish line of this great Jenny L. Cody audiobook, let me remind you that you can buy the sequel to it, also in audiobook form. It is called The Declaration, The Sword, and The Spy, and you can purchase it at audible.com. We, oui, monsieur announcer? Uh, we. Uh, yeah, again, that's The Declaration, The Sword, and The Spy by Jenny L. Cody, the sequel to The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key that we're giving you now. All of this by Jenny L. Cody, and all of it available in audiobook form by going to audible.com. I say, meanwhile, old chap, I shall play the part of Lieutenant Monaco of the Virginia Militia as we reenact that monumental battle near the banks of the Ohio. Uh, that is, if you survive the paperwork, Mosey. We, oui, Max is right, Nigel. Before you go reenact history, you better read the fine print of the present. Indeed. Uh, well, then, I say, where do I sign? Uh, let me read, and I quote, In our attempt 
At complete authenticity, the Rodent Reenactment Committee is hereby absolved from any and all responsibility for any harm or injury to the undersigned rodent. Uh, that be you, Mousie. Ah, uh, duly noted, Max. Including, but not limited to, improperly prepared food with regard to being overcooked, undercooked, or not being sure what is actually being cooked, or any microscopic parasitic infestations, such as ringworm, hookworm... Uh, Liz, 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 uh, uh, not to worry, my pet, for we rodents can eat just about anything. Why, I could survive on tree bark, if necessary. Or any hazardous conditions of the elements, including, but not limited to... Rain, snow, hail, lightning strikes, excessive wind, raging floodwaters, uh, mudslides, etc., etc., or any injuries incurred as a result of the aforementioned catastrophic conditions, including, but not limited to, scratches, cuts, contusions, broken bones, elevated heart rate... Oh, now, Liz, we rodents are of a haughty stock and can deal with most any conditions. Hi, Les. They're almost as indestructible as roaches. Yeah, nice comparison, Max. Uh, thank you, lad. Or the possible presence of common North American carnivorous and or predatory species, including, but not limited to, snakes, owls, hawks, eagles, mountain lions, badgers, gophers, wildcats, wolverines. Hi, they'll be fighting half of the Big Ten Conference. Well, at least Spartans don't eat rodents. Just saying. As well as... I say, my pet, uh, that should quite do it. Uh, your incredibly thorough point is well taken. Suddenly, I find myself in the mood for a quiet evening, indoors, with the old flat screen for a predator-free evening, including... But, but not, not limited, limited to... A good Mel Gibson movie or two, some candy, a few soft drinks, and popcorn... Domesticated, sanitary, and properly popped. And all God's creatures said, Amen! Amen. And huzzah! Huzzah! Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi! A bientôt, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.